Hello, I'm John. I'm Paul. I'm George. And I play the drums. From Pod617.com, the Boston Podcast Network, it's Get Back to the Beatles with Chachi LaPrette and Chachi's co-host, Beatles instructor at Suffolk University, David Galan. It's Get Back to the Beatles, our Beatles podcast, and hello and thank you for joining us today. My name is Chachi LaPrette. I am your host. We're part of the Boston Podcast Network, but we're heard wherever you hear your favorite podcasts. As I said, my name's Chachi LaPrette. I host New England's Breakfast with the Beatles, been on the air in radio for over 40 years playing the Beatles. And joining me is my famous co-host, Professor David Gallant. He's the Beatles professor at Suffolk University. Hello, Mr. Gallant. How are you today? Hello, Chachi. Doing well. It's what beautiful outside, and I'm so excited for today's episode. I know you are. I am as well. We're also welcoming David Yaz to the conversation he is the founder of the Boston Podcast Network, our producer as well, but he's joining us today for our very, very special guests. First, I'd like to say we're brought to you in part by Subaru of New England. So as Professor Gallant said, very excited about our guest today. He's here to share with us his Beatles story, but first a little background. He's the president of the Woo Sox after many years as executive vice president of the Boston Red Sox, 19 years with his hometown Orioles. And he rose from being an intern to public relations. And he also worked with San Diego, with the San Diego Padres, the LA Dodgers. He's helped numerous people throughout his, through his fundraising endeavors and initiatives in pediatric cancer research. We're grateful for that. And each of the four major league clubs established attendance records on this, this gentleman's watch. And with each ball club he's worked with, he's created innovative ballpark entertainment. And we're grateful for that. And so it all ties into our conversation today. He's a baseball guy, but you know what? He's a musician, a songwriter. He's, he recorded music. His, composi his compositions, I should say, have been recorded by Marilyn McCoo and Billy Davis Jr., among others. Performed with Jimmy Buffett at Fenway Park. I could go on forever. But most importantly, he saw the Beatles at a very young age, and he's worked with Paul. And so there's a lot of throngs to this story and we're so very happy to welcome in new england the beloved dr charles steinberg hello dr charles oh thank you dr what a minute did that do <laughs> thank you thank you it it's is great, great to see you all and, and you know you're telling me that i get to sit at polar park and worcester and talk about the beatles that's that's kind of heaven <laughs> that's a great job that you have my friend and we're so grateful and honored that you're here my Two co-hosts were so excited when I told them, we have Dr. Charles Steinberg, and just as excited as I was. So let's start with the reason why you're here and what brought us together. You, at a very young age, saw the Beatles perform in Baltimore, September 13th, 1964. They did two shows at the Baltimore Civic Center, 28,000 people in total. And as I said, Dr. Charles, you were there and... Tell us how it happened, how old you were, what you remember. Now, remember, six year, next year is our 60th anniversary since that day. So a lot of that stuff might have been forgotten. But Dr. Charles, tell us your story. Oh, there's his ticket. Uh, I have a, a photo, not of my ticket stuff, but of a ticket from that show on September 13th, 1964, five years old, almost six. But what I actually still do have is this tie that says Charles loves the Beatles <laughs> is from that day, from that concert that day. It's, it's transformative and you never imagine, you don't imagine much when you're five, but you never imagine that, um, going to your first rock concert, we didn't even call them that. It was just the phenomenon of the Beatles. I would play such a role in your life. So the beginning of the story is uh, that I, like every other kid, was um, a Beatle maniac and was loving uh, the hysteria of 1964. Maybe unlike others, my aunt actually took pity on me because uh, I wasn't going to be able to go see the Beatles. Uh, my parents weren't going to do that. I'm five years old, but I have an older sister and she and my cousins were getting to go. So my aunt and Irene, may she rest in peace, she took me and I remember the day. I remember it on Sunday, September 13th. I remember where we parked about a block and a half away. I remember walking to the Baltimore Civic Center and seeing the interlocking arms of Baltimore City police officers who formed a ring around the entire block 
of the Baltimore Civic Center. So one policeman interlocking arms with the next, with the next, with the next, forming an entire circle around the Baltimore Civic Center. I remember that we had the 18th row of the balcony seats, so stage right. So if I rolled, I'm looking to my left. I remember that the seats were uh, maroon cushions. I remember the maroon, like, curtains, canopy over the stage. And I can still see the four Beatles on stage. And the shrieking is the amazing thing. Just constant, obviously high-pitched, sustained shrieking. And it made it very difficult to hear anything. Although there were some things I didn't hear, and I'll tell you. But it was just a constant, constant a state of, of euphoria and this cacophony of, of high-pitched screaming. But I can, I do, I can still see it. I do remember that near the end, maybe, maybe the, the young girls were losing some of their energy. John Lennon introduced the last song and said, uh, here's a Little Richard song. We've changed the words a little bit and, and called on Paul to sing Long Paul Sally. I, re- I can remember that much. But I can still I uh, hear the sound. I can still see them on stage. And if that's the beginning of the story, to bring it up to present day, who could have imagined that the little five-year-old boy would be making music himself for baseball teams? And that for many of the songs, including the ones here for the Worcester Red Sox, the drummer is Greg Bissonette, who cool. is Ringo Starr's drummer. And on some of the songs, the bass player is Abel Boreal Sr., cool. whose son is Paul McCartney's drummer. So how can it be that I'm making music with the people who are making music with the two surviving Beatles? Oh, and let me not omit uh, the drummer. One of our sessions, thank goodness I didn't know his history. I would have trembled. But what a day we had with Jim Keltner, who's been the drummer for three of the Beatles, for, for John, George, and Ringo, and of course, Traveling Wilburys. So it's, and all of this has happened because of my, my dear friend, Lauren Harriet. He is from Rhode Island and has lived in, LA and been in the music business. And because I was with the Red Sox, I got to meet him and he knew that I loved music and, and had written music. And therefore I, I was able to work with LA session musicians. So one time I did get to meet Abe Laboriel Jr. And of all the, the things that someone who gets to meet him is going to say, what is probably least likely is Oh, let me show you a picture of your father while he's playing with a bass with me on, on songs about the Red Sox or, or the Blue Sox or, or the Dodgers or any of the people with whom I've been blessed to work. So it's my whole life's been a love affair of Beatles and baseball. And that's the origin of it. And that brings us up to today. And, 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 and for those, if you, if you could see our, my friend Paul Barrett is here, who's been in his business many years. And through him, I actually got to meet Ringo last June when he played in Worcester. And what a moment that was to hear Ringo Starr say, did someone say Woosocks? Did someone say Woosocks? Like, how did that happen? So getting to say hello to Paul McCartney and his uh, concert at Fenway Park in July of 2013 was a moment and just getting to thank him for the music that he inspired in me. It has been a long and winding road. Boy, it sure has been Dr. Charles from, from Baltimore to bringing Paul to Fenway multiple times. That must have been a, that must have been a joy for you to even participate in that. Well, it's funny. Um, you know, you're always tempted to borrow all of these lines from the songs, but they've been going in and out of style. And when we started to have concerts at, at Fenway Park, 
we, we joined the Red Sox in 2002 and had our first concert in 2003 and it was for Springsteen and it was just wonderful. It was just great. Well, then you're starting to talk about who should we have next year? And I'm like, well, oh, <laughs> you become typecast very quickly that, oh, of course, Charles <laughs> is going to say Paul McCartney, of course, Charles <laughs> is going to say a Beatle. And you lose a little bit of credibility because my friends all know that I've been such a Beatles fan. Well, it takes a while then for others to say it too. And then finally you do have Paul McCartney. So what was, what was very cool was in July of 13, just because Paul's playing doesn't mean I'm going to get to meet him. In fact, why would I get to meet him? But the chairman of the Red Sox, Tom Werner, was going to be saying hello to him. And Paul was, uh, I learned something fascinating that I've applied in baseball since then. Paul was going to meet people before the show, but in groups of four. And Tom Warner could be accompanied by three people. And my, my friend at the Red Sox, Larry Cairngrow, a longtime Red Sox person and huge in the music world, he had arranged for me to be one of the four along. It was also arranged by my friend Sam Kennedy, who was the president of the Red Sox. Well, the, the reason that it was groups of four was we walked back to an area that had been draped off way back behind the center field wall. And it was an outdoor, but now decorated space. And there were these clusters of four people spread around this space. Well, sure enough, out from a trailer comes Paul McCartney. And there we see him over on the other side, talking to a group of four, but there can be no people behind the group of four. There are no looky-loos, there are no distractions. <laughs> Undistracted. Now comes over, talks to another group of four. Well, now he comes over to us. And what you realized was in order for him to have focused attention on the people he was meeting, there were only four people in his vision. That's it. You're not seeing anyone else trying to get in, trying to nudge, trying to take a picture, trying to say, oh, come over here. And it was a, uh, a successful way for him to give full attention on quartet. And he talked to each person uh, among our four. And when it got to me, I, I just said, you still stammer. I said, well, thank you for inspiring all of us who have um, written music and have created music uh, to believe that we could because of you. Now, that wasn't what I intended to tell him. And I'll tell you what I intended to tell him. At this idea, before we walked out there, I thought if I were meeting him, the last thing he wants to hear is, hi, my name is Charles Steiber. I saw you when I was five years ago. That, that, that's not gonna help him. You can tell as an artist, he always wants to go forward, always wants to do the next thing. He's talked about that with Beatles music. He doesn't want to keep making the music of of Revolver, Rubber, Soul, even though we would love him to make more of it. No, he's done that. He wants to do the next thing. I thought, what might he do next? Now, this was 2013, and I told Tom Warner the idea, and I offered it to Tom Warner as a gift to give to Paul. I said, here's what we should say to him. Next year is 2014. It's the 50th anniversary of the Beatles coming to America. And of course, in New York, well, we all know with all of the emotions that go with it, the uh, strawberry fields area of Central Park with the imagine almost in a sundown you know, there. Well, what we should do is suggest to Paul that while that is strawberry fields, because John Lennon lived there. On the other side of Central Park should be Penny Lane, where Paul's offices are, and they should be connected by the long and winding road. And at Penny Lane, you should have a wishing well of love. And at Strawberry Fields, you should have a wishing well of peace. And you could have an 
sun rising in the middle for George, and you could have an octopus's garden there for Ringo in the middle of Central Park. And the Beatles thank you to New York for getting it all started could be perpetuated, but with the charity component of the Wishing Well of Love home and the Wishing Well of Peace, John, uh, and you can certainly have more for, for George and Ringo too. And so I told that to Tom Werner, who loved the idea. And we shared it with Paul's road manager. And he said in his lovely British accent, I love that idea. I love it so much. I think it might be mine. <laughs> Okay, well, then a few minutes later, I meet Paul McCartney and I didn't want to take back the idea that I had just given to, I think it's Eric Marshall, if I remember right. So I found myself saying, thank you for all the music you've given me. And I, I hope that the idea did get to him. It's not too late to do it, but I think it would be fascinating, everlasting tribute to the Beatles and promoting, just as we met Ringo, first thing he said was peace and love. So that, that was, that was the idea I meant to tell Paul, but I did give it to his own matter. It is a brilliant idea. You've mentioned that to me before and I just love it. I think uh, it's a great idea. Hopefully someday it can happen. Now, listen, uh, Professor Gallant, I know you're chomping at the bit here and David, yes. So, but that's a great story. I would just add one other thing that I think last June for me was the best appearance by Paul at Fenway Park. I don't know if you agree. I thought it was fantastic. Absolutely amazing. And um, I saw him both nights, June 7th and June 8th, and then went down to Baltimore because he played Camden Yards. And that was his first concert in Baltimore since the one that I saw. So somebody from the Baltimore Sun did an article on, I think, three people they knew about who had been to both concerts. But they, they didn't know that I was there, too, and that's just as well. But I was able to take my fiancé and give her a healthy dose of... So it was Ringo on June 3rd, all June 7th, all June 8th, and all June 12th. How is that for a 10-day period of four concerts? <laughs> and we're approaching the one-year anniversary of that, that happening. So good for you. Beatle Professor Gallant. Chachi, you know, I mentioned before this podcast that I was already starstruck. Now I'm awestruck. Okay. <laughs> uh, and, and maybe even a little bit dumbstruck. I think that, Dr. Charles, that the the plan you had for that stretch of Central Park, I, I want our listening audience to know, who probably already know a lot of, of Dr. Charles's bio, if you will. That's sort of just a pure, great example of his genius of bringing something out into the public that everyone has such an emotional attachment to, but can share it. And I'll go back to the, to the, to the renovation, preservation and perpetuation of everything that we love now about Fenway Park. Not that I didn't love the troughs in the men's room when I was a kid. However, of the fact that we're so far beyond that now and is really such a living treasure. And I, when I've gone there, when I've gotten to go see a game there, and I'm surrounded by, by, by tourists who are going to Fenway as a shrine. Any team can travel well when they know they can spend time to go to Boston as a tourist and get into Fenway Park. They're there much like the screaming kids at the Beatles concert. Fenway is a place for them to see. The game is almost incidental. Ringo always said people came not to hear us, but just to see us, to experience it, right? That profound moment that you're surrounded by something important. That's what people feel about Fenway every day. And I'll tell you, Dr. Childs, when my kids were a lot younger, they grew up going to McCoy Stadium when you were having a hand in that. And I did when I was a kid. And I remember my kids coming home from middle school with the tickets that were just given to school children in Southeastern Mass in that area in Rhode Island. They, oh, we could just grab a bunch of these and go to the Paw Sox. And it's that type of linkage with community, Chachi, that, that makes these places special. And I'm sure that's taking hold in Worcester. And I already mentioned, much to my shame, I've not yet been out to Polar Park but it's on my list this summer. I want to get there. My daughter lives over in Westboro, so I can take the train over. I was telling Paul that before. But it's really just, it's really just genius. That way of thinking of, of, of events like that in a venue that is, yes, people go in to see a ball game or a concert, but you still have that sense of community. I saw Paul last year 
The only reason why I would disagree that it wasn't his best show at Fenway was because the previous time, my daughter, my older daughter surprised me with birthday tickets. So I went there on my birthday. He played July 9th. That might have been in 2013. So that was sort of the better time I saw. I saw Paul because of that. But the other thing, Chachi, I mentioned that Dr. Charles shared one thing in common, him more recently than I, but we both have been lecturers at Emerson College. Years ago, I taught uh, writing and argumentation and debate, and I had an office next to one of my other childhood heroes, Rex Trailer. You remember Rex Trailer, Chachi? Oh, yes. Now, <laughs> acting for the camera. Yep. Uh, I was a Boston institution. So I enjoyed my time there. And, and I'm sure that, Dr. Childs, I, I guess I'm curious a little bit. What you've done in your career in baseball and music is really a way of bringing people in and giving them something that they'll remember. And I'm sure you found that maybe even having students in a classroom. Is that, is that something that you brought to bear in your teaching? And is that somehow made its way when you are working in your profession with community work and baseball? Because so much of what you've done reaches people and fans at all levels. And these are things that have profound, long-lasting effects. Well, thank you. Thank you for the very generous words. But yes, at, at Emerson, where I've loved teaching, I will spring a song on, on the students. Look, you can, you can talk about the great improvements to Fenway Park, but you, to do that, John Henry and Tom Werner had to believe in them and fund them. And Larry Lucchino and Jennifer e. Smith were the geniuses who uh, created and executed the great improvements. It occurred to me that Larry Lucchino and Janet Marie Smith and Theo Epstein and I were all our own little quartet in Baltimore. We then went out to San Diego while the Beatles went to Hamburg. We then took our act to a bigger stage and came to Boston as the, the Beatles, of course, conquered America and the world. And so in my own private little world, I thought of Larry and Janet and Theo and me as that little quartet from a town that, uh, not that we were born, all born there I was, but where we kind of owned our craft uh, in a little club. Well, that has borne a body of music that is a baseball musical that is sitting there waiting for me to have the time to, to fully express it. But it is a parallel. It is uh, with full apologies for anything to be called an analogy to the Beatles because it's so much smaller in its scope. But in my classes at Emerson, it's all about storytelling. It's all about storytelling. And the music that accompanies the storytelling, whether it is Eleanor Rigby or, or whether it is um, Lady Madonna or these short stories that Paul, in this case, but any of the Beatles have written musically. Yes, it works my way into the stories of what we've done in baseball. And all baseball games have a soundtrack. And I have adored having a hand in orchestrating that soundtrack because you can meet the fans at their emotional level resonate with them, perhaps if the song is right, lift their spirits. But, you know, if it's a listering hot Sunday afternoon and the team's down 10 to two, that's not when you're going to play a raucous rock and roller. That, I, I, that's not what I'm relating to right now. I might relate more to, uh, you know, a sunny afternoon. But the music needs to hook in uh, and clutch the emotions that the fans are feeling at that time. And then once hooked, you can go up and down. The whole uh, story, if we do a, a podcast on Neil Diamond about Sweet Caroline, was that I believe that song had the power to quote myself. Uh, I told Neil Diamond, I said, I believe that that transformative powers because it starts gently. It can, you can join it. And then it moves and you can rise with it. Well, the Beatles have provided so many songs over my whole life and my whole career in baseball that fit the mood and the moment of baseball game. And whether it was a pitcher on your team 
who was struggling and you're going to play weak and work it out or the pitcher on the other team and you're going to play help or the, the reliever comes in and you want to play, uh, anytime at all, all you got to do is call it out there or, or, or George Harrison's, I need you. What, whatever it was, it starts raining. Well, you're going to play rain. So they become cliches with repetition, but there's great delight in knowing that the Beatles catalog gave you a song anytime, anytime you needed one in any ballpark I've, where I've ever worked that can hit the mood and also be uh, lyrically appropriate too. And that's just sheer fun. It's surgical. It's curative. And, and I will buy your your journey motif, Dr. Steinberg, because um, when you, you go from Baltimore and then the West Coast, you're, you, you put in, as Malcolm Gladwell said about the Beatles, you put in your 10,000 hours by the time you got to Fenway. And, and, then, and then that meant that you were, you were good at it. So I'll buy that completely. And never, ever, ever, I love the way you explain it, never make anyone let you apologize for Sweet Caroline. Shaughnessy <laughs> knows. But uh, and there was one writer who said to me, I knock it because I get Twitter followers. He said, but don't stop doing it. <laughs> so it's, but it's not, it's not our decision. The fans are the ones who say, do play a song. And uh, when I went to the Los Angeles Dodgers, I'm like, you know, they were saying, what's, what's our sweet Caroline going to be? You don't know that. But what you do is you play a song that has a moment. And I did it with, I saw her standing there where when you play, I saw her standing there festive crowd, everybody's going to woo on the woo. And you do that. And the audio person pods it down so that the fans hear themselves singing it, and then it becomes their thing. We're going to take a minute right now to tell you about another podcast that you should definitely check out. It's called Past Tens, a top 10 time machine. That's right, Chachi. Tens, as in T-E-N-S. Your host, David Yaz. And the chartmeister, Michael Milwolves, traveled back in time to revisit the top 10 hits on the Billboard charts on a given day in the past. Sometimes the songs hold up nicely, other times they make you cringe, and that's when comedy and chaos ensue on past tense. You know, David, I think the best episode was when they went back to 1964 because the list was packed with Beatles songs and also because those bozos, Milt and Dave, respectively, had the good sense to have us on that episode to school them on all things Beatles. I agree, Chachi. That was a fantastic episode, probably their best. But also check out the episode where I filled in for Milt. It spared the audience the usual allotment of Milt fart jokes. You'll have to listen to it to what other types of bodily function jokes are put in. I had no idea that you were a guest host. I feel offended and betrayed. But <laughs> I have to admit, for a couple of knuckleheads, these guys put on a fantastic show. It's past tens to a top ten time machine. Find it anywhere you get your podcasts. Well, visit timemachinepod.com. That's timemachinepod.com. So the Beatles have just had an amazing catalog. I could stop the sentence right there, but it has been one that has provided so many opportunities for uh, enhancement to the best of mode in the soundtrack of a baseball game. Professor Charles, you... I have to, I had a different question locked and loaded, but I have to ask my sweet Caroline question now. So looking back on it, it looks to be a stroke of genius that you created the tradition of playing that at, was it the eighth inning or the seventh inning? Middle of the eighth. Middle of the eighth. Seventh inning judge. One at an eighth inning judge. But that had. So did it catch on? My hazy memory is you had it played in the eighth inning. But my guess was you didn't necessarily think the fans were going to embrace it like they did. Is that what happened there? You, you have to know that you don't know. <laughs> right. Oh, is that when we joined the Red Sox in 2002, the Red Sox were already playing Sweet Caroline from time to time. Mm. And I noticed, and that's what you have to do, is notice that when they did, the crowd would say, so one time I went into the control room and a wonderful young man, Danny Michelle, was in charge of, of the control room. I said, um, you playing Sweet Caroline tonight? He goes, oh no, we only play Sweet Caroline on Sweet Caroline nights. I said, what's a Sweet Caroline night? He said, well, that's when the crowd, when the team is ahead, the crowd is festive, maybe inebriated, and they're going to 
clearly sing along. And I knew that he was right to do it on those occasions. But I also believed that the song had transformative powers to take a melancholy crowd and lift it to higher heights. The reason I believed it was that in Baltimore at the Orioles, fans looked forward to, of all things, John Denver's Country Boy. But it became an anthem that that people just approached with with eager anticipation. And it was it was an interlude of festivity. And years later we are with the San Diego Padres, and it's a slightly different situation, but there was a whole story we can on another time that led us to play Hell's Bells when our uh, star, uh, now the Hall of Fame closer, Trevor Hoffman, would come in. And it just changed the game. If you pick the right song that connects with people, it changes the whole experience. So by the time we got to Boston, I had a, a faith that the singing I was hearing from the fans might apply to Sweet Caroline, regardless of what the score was, regardless of the mood, but I didn't know. But I said to Danny, let's play it tonight. His eyes got big as saucers because this represented change. But the only thing that matters in the entire Sweet Caroline story is that the fans sang it and the fans sing it. It's not up to the ball club. There is no instruction. It's spontaneous, it's organic, it's sincere, it's generated. That's what I love about it. It reminds me of the the scene in the Queen movie, Bohemian Rhapsody, when the the fa- the, the band says, the Brian May, the guy playing Brian May says, let's invent a song that the audience can perform. And uh, that's what Sweet Caroline becomes. By the way, I was I was Danny Cashel's camp counselor at Camp Tell Nowhere back in the 80s. <laughs> that, that's fabulous. That's what I love. Yeah, he, he, yeah. he was a sweet little kid. I'll ask. Yeah. I'll ask one more question, then I'll turn it back over to the Beatle maniacs. But just you mentioned how Sweet Caroline goes up and down, and I, I do. I do a different music podcast than these guys. I'm not quite as primo as they are. But we we often talk about how some of the greatest songs in history can make you happy and sad at the same time and really imbue kind of a drama. I have this memory of you selecting A Day in the Life by the Beatles to play over a video montage. It was one, it, it was definitely Sox Yankees, I think. Can you, do you, it seems like you recall that. Tell us about, about the, the drama that comes out of that song and why it was appropriate. Vividly. Good. In, in 2006, I thought, all right, next year is 2007 the 40th anniversary of Sgt. Pepper's, and it's also the 40th anniversary, the Red Sox Impossible Dream American League Champions of 1967. And while I'm not a visual artist, I nonetheless sat down and started to draw the Red Sox Sgt. Pepper's cover. All the Red Sox characters. There you go. And Chachi's got it. She's holding And then... If I, if I hadn't made enough of a mess, how about if we make a video vignette about the Red Sox to each song on Sergeant Peppers? So we had several uh, video editors, Josh Carroll, wonderful guy, uh, and Katie Phillips, hilarious, ironically, a Yankees fan, but a brilliant editor. And we are taking each song, and what are we going to do? We should come back to Lucy and the sky. It's, it's a cute story. But we get to a day in the life, and there's only one thing to do with that. And you're right. It's the emotion. You don't have to differentiate the emotion. You don't need happy songs and sad songs. It's all emotion. That song will carry you up. It'll bring you down. So we actually started with Sgt. Pepper's Reprise as the, the beginning, the way we all used to listen to it before it got digitized and here comes a day in the light and the song gives it to you it it hands you the drama of the three losses to the yankees on a silver turntable and you have the the first crescendo but what before you get the first crescendo you're just at this low 
and and getting down the shot of this fan in the stands after being down three games to none and down in game four. And he turns his hat inside out and says, believe like that poor fellow actually thought we could turn this around. Well, to him, we ascribe responsibility because he turned out to be right. Well, now here comes the whole rejuvenation of the song and the rejuvenation of the Red Song. You're watching the whole thing go. And oh my God. And the, the song just gives it to you. The song gives you the soundtrack and you take it then in the second crescendo all the way up as you reprise the tortured past of the Red Sox and then on the final mm. four, you're, you're there. Well, we play, when do you have time to play a full-length version like that? Well, postseason, that's actually when you have time. And so I believe that, therefore, we debuted at seven. But boy, did that connect. And it's, it's, it's a piece of art. And Katie Phillips was the editor of that. But yes, we did that. Let me squeeze in the other song. Sure. Uh, the, the funny story. What are you going to do for Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds? Did you know? We had to look it up in the baseball encyclopedia that to that point, there had only been one major league baseball player in history whose name was Lucy. Mm. And that was his last name, L-U-C-E-Y. And he played for the Red Sox. <laughs> Like a moonlight gram in, I believe, 1923 or 25. But wait, there's more. He was from Massachusetts. Mm -hmm. He was from Holyoke. Well, we start researching the whole story. And one of my favorite colleagues at the Red Sox, who was Tessie in, in the drop pitch video and ran the bases, uh, smacking players, Colleen Riley. Colleen goes out with our videographers to the Connecticut River, if you want to picture yourself in a boat on a river, which of course borders Holyoke. And they do the shoot with in the in the autumn colors with tangerine trees and marmalade skies. And they find the tombstone. They find in the cemetery the grave of Lucy, who now is in the sky with baseball side. <laughs> we went so far as to take another uh, great colleague of mine, Mike Olano from Worcester. And I don't know who did this because you were subjected to seven years of bad luck, but they took mirror pieces and glued them onto a tie. So he therefore had, he, and he looked very formal. He looked like a plasticine porter with looking glass. <laughs> Looking glass tie. And I mean, it was, it was as esoteric as Lucy in the Sky was, but we really enjoyed that one. So that was art for art's sake. A day in the life was art for art's sake that really had a connection. And uh, I wound up getting to show those to Jeff Jones, the, the, the uh, CEO of Apple Records. I said, I'm not suggesting any, any commercialization or any rights. We never sold any of it. We couldn't have. But I do think it was authentically fetal in its philosophy to just create the art because it's art. And there's a quote that I need to commit to memory from John Lennon later about, he said something, there's a paraphrase. Some people think of art as like chocolate, as an addition, as like a dessert. No, art is a part of your, of your meal, of your life. And the making of a, a Red Sox vignette to every song on Sgt. Pepper's culminating with the day in the life as the comeback against the Yankees and the winning of the World Series. That was a, that was a fun one. If only the Celtics had won last night, you could have given that idea with Grossbeck <laughs> and Frew and, and then maybe they could have played that out. Chachi, doesn't this make you want to go to a baseball game now, right? <laughs> I certainly do. And I, I love Polo Park. I've been there. It's a great place. I want to see a game this season. It's awesome. We're, we're really talking these these greatest hits, Chachi. I mean, you don't have Mariano Rivera in New York coming out to Metallica without Trevor Hoffman and Hell's Bells. And I think part of the staying power of, of Sweet Caroline, lest we forget, is that the Sox won. And then they won again. And then they won again. 
and now they've won again. I think that the 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 winning the team not directly has a hand, but overall has a hand in the preservation of that great communal moment. And of course, obviously, we can't we can't dictate that, but it's wonderful certainly that it that it has happened. Um, no, believe me, when I was a kid, the the Orioles were I respected them. I had an Orioles hat though I was a Red Sox fan, but hearing hearing the John Denver makes me think of the ghosts of John Lowenstein and Bobby Gritch and Mike Flanagan and Jim Palmer. I know they're your guys. So, and I, and also I didn't, I wasn't there that night, but the night after the conclusion of the game, I was at McCoy stadium in 1981 and got one of the souvenir cups from the longest game ever, where of course, Cal Ripken played and Wade Boggs played. And, but yeah, thank God I'm a country boy. Boy, does that bring back memories of the old Memorial stadium on TV? Now think about what you're saying, because that's the whole point. A song by John Denver (laughs) is reminding you of baseball in a very particular way where you can see the scene, you can see the players, you can feel the atmosphere. That's the whole point. Of of the team I respected but hated because they were beating my Red Sox. (laughs) Look at the power of music. And for our subject today, and it can be for 20 more of these, the Beatles, look at the power music has to give you illustrations of times completely unrelated to the song. Yeah. What does Thank God I'm a Country Boy have to do with, with baseball? <laughs> Only everything appropriate fan in the, in the late 70s. Absolutely. And early 80s. And that's, that's the beauty and the power of the music that the, and the Beatles have given us so much music collectively and individually. And thank God they, they still are. There, there's a song by Paul and Ringo that I just think is not, not well known. Uh, when I, when I walk with you, I think it's called. And oh my gosh, listen to that song. It's, you know, a late in life song. And there's a lot of emotion in, in the music, uh, whether you're gone from love me do or, or walk with you. Uh, Dr. Charles, I'm reminded of the day that the Yankee fans at Yankee Stadium sang Sweet Caroline. Do you remember why they did? Yeah, yeah. That's a that's a powerful one. After the marathon tragedy, which took place on April 15th of 2013, various clubs, including the Yankees at Yankee Stadium, paid tribute to Boston. And how were they going to do it? by using a piece of music, by using that song. And that is the reason that at 12.43 p.m. on Saturday, April 20th, 2013, my two colleagues walked by me and said, Neil Diamond just called the switchboard. He's here in Boston. Like, what would he be doing here? Well, I returned the call. That's how I know exactly what time it was. I later looked at my phone. And Neil Diamond and his wife, Katie, flown to Boston that morning from Los Angeles, leaving LA at 4.30 in the morning, arriving in Boston at 9.30, which made it 12.30. And they were coming over. And when they came over, he said, I saw how the other cities were using Sweet Caroline to pay tribute to Boston. And I just had to be here. Wow. Unbelievable. Wow. The one time Yankee fans ever made me cry, tear. Well, I don't know if they were tears of joy, but it was it was just like you said, powerful. S- such a nice touch, Josh. And as the clock is ticking here, but I want to before we say goodbye, uh, Doctor Charles, I want to go back to Baltimore with you. Quick questions: Your aunt, did she go on the rest of her life proud that she brought her five year old nephew to see the Beatles? Did your parents say no? You can't bring him to a Beatles concert. Is the Holiday Inn still there? Because a lot of hotels are gone that they stayed in. I think the Holiday Inn is still there. And certainly the Civic Center under a new name is still there. But no, Anne Irene, it was funny. Uh, she was a, a sweet aunt who loved, I was the only boy after a, a whole bunch of girls had been born else, you know, throughout the family. And the, the funny thing was, years later, I said, yeah, Anne Irene, thank you for you know, taking the Beatles. What? What did I do? I <laughs> should there was not nearly the moment for her. Her joy was that she was taking her five-year-old nephew to it. So I had to remind her that, that she took me. But I do love that I have the tie from, 
from that actual concert. It's like a, 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 it's, you know, it's so from that day, but it's like, yeah, I really was there. And what, one other thing that ties the Beatles and baseball together as, as we wrap up, all right, I'm five years old. I see the Beatles. 12 years later, unimaginably, I get an internship with the Baltimore Orioles. I'm 17 years old. 11 years into my career with the Orioles, we're now 23 years since the day I saw them. Our team photographer, a nice older gentleman, said, you like the Beatles, don't you? I said, oh, yeah, yeah, very much. So. He said, you really ought to come to my uh, studio tomorrow. I'm putting on an exhibition of photos of them. I said, where did you photograph the Beatles? He goes, one day, 23 years ago, they were in Baltimore, and I was a stringer for a British newspaper. He said, I took a stepladder with me. I put it front and center. I climbed up the stepladder. I'm there shooting the pictures. They told me, you can't do that. I said, that's fine. I already had a roll of film. He said, and I said, September 13th, 1964? He goes, yes. I said, I was at that concert. Well, I now own a photograph, the Beatles on stage, front and center from the very concert I attended that only through divine orchestration would I have ever known existed or, or, um, or my friend at the Orioles, Julie Wagner actually uh, bought for me. And that is a real possession. That is fantastic. There's the legendary story, how a giant box was delivered to their floor at the hotel. And the security guard was concerned about this box and inside were two female fans. Did you ever hear that? Oh story? my gosh. Well, and the story I just heard on, on the Beatles channel was that the next day before leaving to go, I think to Philadelphia, George Harrison wanted to see what real life was like and went to um, uh, a private Catholic uh, girls school, Mercy High School, and went in and talked to the treating girls in, the, in their classroom. How about that? It is crazy. I mean, those little things, for, for instance, in 1966, when they played Suffolk Downs, they landed in Lexington at Hanscom. They traveled down Route 2 through Fresh Palm Parkway onto Starrow Drive. And my home, my childhood home was just a few blocks away from that road. And they traveled down it at three in the morning when they arrived for the Suffolk Downs show, or for the Boston Garden show. So it was pretty amazing. Those little bits of information. Oh, the, the little bits are the best. Yep. Greg Bissonette, Ringo's drummer, and dare I say, my drummer, uh, told me the story that he asked Ringo, where did you get that drum beat on In My Life? So, you know, a very particular and distinct drum beat. Yeah. And Ringo just nonchalantly said, oh, that's Anna. And so you take the Beatles song, Anna, which was an Arthur Alexander composition, and Ringo... Acknowledged to, to Greg Bissonnet that that was where, where he took that beat from for, you know, what is such a, a beautiful, distinctive beat on in my life. And you know, what's amazing bit. too, is I, I heard a clip the other day, Paul McCartney telling a story about Hey Jude and how they started performing it, recording it. Ringo was in the men's room. And so it, it, the tape is out there. I can send it to you with Paul is talking. They started playing it and they had a tape running. Ringo was in the bathroom. And then he came walking out, noticed that the song was playing, jumped on the drums, and then joined in. And they found that it was perfect where oh, he joined in from him God. getting out of the bathroom. Never knew that. <laughs> Amazing. So let's go around the room before we say goodbye for any last-minute questions or comments. Professor David Galland from you Suffolk know, University. I thought that Dr. Charles was going to say in that photograph he acquired, he could see himself down in the corner. But I tell you, being brought to the concert, Five years old, that's a bold move. And as we know, Chachi, that Baltimore show, right, was right after Boston. Yeah. Uh, and then he did it again, right? He saw he saw the concerts here in Boston that went down to Baltimore again right. to see them. So uh, it's just great that way. Again, I was just, Chachi, I'm Dr. Charles, but thrilled. And don't be surprised if I crash the gates when I do get to Col uh, Polar Park and get upstairs and knock on the door there. Well, you come in, I, sweet. I think you'll enjoy the guitars that you see. 
<laughs> That's right. You will. I've been there, Professor. It's an amazing I'll, 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 place. I'll take it as an invite. Mr. Yaz and I are going to go there next to uh, home band. I'm in. Professor Charles, forced to choose. What's your favorite Beatles song? And I love her. Beautiful. Good one. Just goes through me every time. And even though uh, with enough um, stories that can go with the fact that it is when I'm 64, I am for the first time in my life engaged. And uh, my beautiful fiance, thank God, loves the Beatles. George is her favorite. And in the planning of the wedding, and I love her, will be the beginning, not of her procession, but of the procession, followed by here, there, and everywhere. And she hopes to walk down to the long and winding road. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. Well, listen, Dr. Charles, it's been a distinct pleasure and honor to have you on Get Back to the Beatles. And thank you, Paul Barrett, formerly of MCA Records. We worked together for years. And um, I get to be his colleague. Now you get to be his colleague and we all want to come and see a game and we will do that. And any, are you going to have a Beatles night this year? Uh, something we like do. that? We have Beatles fireworks. We're told that we can't call it Beatles fireworks, but I think the Beatles would be fine with it. So we call it the best of the British invasion. But everybody who knows. Well, everyone should go to see the Woo Sox at Polar Park. A beautiful venue, Dr. Charles. Really beautiful. Thank you. It's the fifth baby for Larry Lucchino and Janet Marie Smith, and I just get to delight in it. But thank you all, and thank you all for celebrating the Beatles because their music continues to bring so much joy all over the world. Pretty amazing. And it's it's great that John Henry also owns the Liverpool team. That's pretty funny, too. Yes, yes. And, and when Tom Warner met Paul, Paul knew that, that Tom was the chairman of, of Liverpool, but there's another team in Liverpool, isn't there? There is. And that one is Paul's team. So, <laughs> no. It was a cute moment. Was a his cute dad, moment. yeah, his dad, Trachi, right? His dad, Paul's dad, was a, was an Everton fan. And uh, yeah, that's the other one. But yeah, Dr. Charles, that was always my dream, to have students to run a course on the comparisons between Liverpool and Boston and Old Anfield and Fenway and and, uh, but I think uh, I don't know. Maybe that time has passed. Maybe John well, isn't isn't can, owning isn't owning uh, Liverpool that much longer. I'm not sure. So I would I would go for it. Okay, <laughs> I'll drop your name, <laughs> Mr. Yaz. Any final words for you? No, thank you, Dr. Charles. Such a thrill and a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you again. Well, thank you all for listening to Get Back to the Beatles. And if you go to the Boston Podcast Network, they have a lot of fantastic podcasts. And I'm proud to be on the Boston Podcast Network. And thank you for listening to Get Back to the Beatles. And a very special thank you to Dr. Charles Steinberg. Whenever you're in the Worcester, Mass area, go see a game, a Woo Sox game at Polar Park. And you just might see uh, David Jazz, Professor Gallant, and myself at a game very, very soon this summer. So, Dr. Charles Steinberg, thank you so much for everything. Thank you again. And to everybody listening, thank you all. Good night. Good day. We'll see you next time on Get Back to the Beatles. Bye-bye. Make sure to check for the latest episode of Get Back to the Beatles with Chachi LaPrette at pod617.com. The Boston Podcast Network.